Welcome to the unofficial House of Wind book club, ran by two best friends and self-declared members of the Night Court. Today we are discussing chapters three and four of A Court of Mist and Fury. I know you can hear me from the dark. I know you're listening from afar. I thought that no one could fix me. Can't get hold of my feelings with you in my head. Libby, how has your week been? It's been fun. It's been interesting. I'm glad that as we are recording now, the holidays are finally over. I am holidayed out. I don't need any more holiday things for a while. I'm welcoming the break before Valentine's Day. I'm so done with my house being overly decorated and just things everywhere. And I'm enjoying having my space back. I did want to tell you something that had happened. There were quite a few things, I should say, that happened at Disney that were remarkable. One of my favorites, though, was when we ate at Beauty and the Beast's Castle and oh yeah we had lunch there and on the menu they because it changes they change the menus throughout the year there was okay escargot and i don't know if you know what escargot is do you snails right so (laughs) i am adventurous i love to try new things i saw it and i was like i want to try this you know why not they're not going to give me some dirty snail out of a garden. Obviously, right. it's, it's edible, clean, cooked, seasoned snails th- that are popular in France. And so I ordered it. And so did my husband. And I was all excited. And my sister and her fiance were with us. Her fiance knew what escargot was, but my sister did not. And so I was like, you know, I'm excited. I've never tried escargot. And Skylar was kind of confused. Like, you've never had escargot? And I'm like, what do you have? I'm sorry, bougie. Yeah, because he ordered it too. Right. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. You, you've never been to Disney before you went with me. What do you mean you've had escargot? Like, when did you do those things as a kid? No. <laughs> he saw that it was saying escargot with some baguettes. He thought escargot was another type of French bread. So, oh, bless his heart. <laughs> so then I was like, no, that's snails. And he was like, what? And I was like, you ordered snails. And he was like, oh. <gasps> Buddy. But <laughs> look, I have to say he was brave and he tried it anyway. And he was like, it's good. He's like, but I can't get past the thought that I'm eating snails right now. So he ate like two or three and he couldn't finish it because he's like, I just can't get past the fact that I'm eating snails. It doesn't bother me. I can get past the title of something because it's not, they don't look like snails. They're not, they don't come with shells. They don't have eyes sticking out. It's like when you eat oysters or mussels, except they're snails, you know? So I was able to eat them. I thought they were really good. They tasted just like oysters to me. They didn't really taste like something slimy or gross. They just tasted like food (laughs) my sister couldn't do it she was like no I can't because she didn't seem to realize it was snails she just didn't really think of it as anything at all and her fiance Maddie tried it and Maddie was like I knew what it was and she tried it and they didn't mind it I guess okay I was apparently the only one that was able to stomach and enjoy the escargot (laughs) 
Well, I am very proud of you for trying new foods because a lot of people... I love trying new foods. ...can't do that. So that is amazing. Right. I thought it was really fun, but I felt so bad because I know that had he realized what he was ordering, he probably would have gotten a different... It was an appetizer. It wasn't the meal. It was like a personal little appetizer thing. So he would have probably picked something else. But (laughs) I'm proud of him for sticking with it and trying it anyway, even if he couldn't finish it. He did wipe out the baguette, though. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. He did He did enjoy the baguette that it came with. That was the French bread. That was French he bread. He did technically get the French bread that he wanted. <laughs> Just not as much French bread as he seemed to think that there would be. I just can just see him being so disappointed. Just the shock on his face when I was like, what did you think this was? And then he realized it was snails and like, oh, his face. This, oh, I'm still proud of him though. Oh, But okay, Abby, tell us about how you have been doing this week. I am, excuse my French, fucking cold. (laughs) And I have been cold for the last, I don't know, three months. And I would like to say, I don't know how you skinny and normal sized people deal with the cold. Because when I weighed almost 400 pounds, I had a built in body suit. Like I had a built in heating pad at all times. And it was magical. I could go outside with it being below freezing and not bat an eye in a t-shirt. For like an hour, I'd be good. Really? Wow. Okay. It was beautiful. My feet never got cold. If anything, I was always overheated. And uh, now is the exact opposite and I hate it. I am cold all of the time. It's actually a phenomenon that happens after any sort of um, bariatric surgery. They call it the bariatric burr, <laughs> like burr, I'm cold, because again, we are generally used to living in bigger bodies that are like furnaces. Okay. And then you lose your insulation. You use, lose the body fat off you and you are no longer insulated at all times. So okay. is it freezing in Italy all the time? No, but we don't have central heating or air here. So you can find me snuggled up in my bed, which is right next to the radiator with about 47 blankets on, Mm. two sweatshirts, three pairs of socks, and fleece-lined leggings, and still be cold. Abby, two words. Heated sheets. Heated sheets. But the minute I sleep, I overheat. Okay. So that wouldn't help me. It's just, it's every other time. Uh. Even now, I have slippers by me. I already have a pair of socks on. My feet aren't even touching the ground and my feet are cold. <laughs> Libby, I am right by a radiator. I can't explain how nice it was to not ever have to worry about wearing a jacket. I get why people wear jackets now. I never understood before. I thought they were a nuisance because I was already hot. Like, why worry about it? <laughs> Guys, I just, I'm newly cold. Newly cold. And I don't know how to get over. <laughs> it. I noticed it last year a little bit that I didn't overheat in the summer. And I was like, oh, this is nice because I wasn't sweating all the time like I was used to. In the summer, yeah. It was really, really cool. It's not so cool now. It's really not great. So if anybody wants to send me like a heated blanket or, oh, do they make like heated Snuggies? You know, they make heated coats. So I'm sure that there's got to be somebody out there. <laughs> I'm going to maybe maybe look at that because that sounds fantastic. Maybe an Etsy thing? Heated coats for bariatric people. Oh, okay. Well, thank you all for listening to my ramblings about being cold. Libby, can I ask you a question? Is it our question of the week? Yeah. Then yes. Okay. What is the lie you were told as a kid that you believed for way too long? <laughs> Do you want me to go first on this one? You can, because mine still pisses me off. (laughs) So please. So when I was about puberty age, you know, and started getting periods, my periods would get so intense that I would get very sick and I couldn't move. And I was in just such intense pain. 
that my parents often took me to the ER because they thought this was just way too extreme for what kind of pain you should be having for period cramps. And <laughs> right. That sounds terrifying. It was really bad. And the ER doctors said that it was endometriosis, which that was kind of the extent of anything that they really did or they, they just kind of were like, ooh, endometriosis. All right, go home. Good luck. That's it. Good. This is going to hurt. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to being a woman. <laughs> Figure it out. We love it. And it was great healthcare. Great healthcare. Loved that. So I was in a lot of pain quite a bit. I I would think so. Yeah, it was pretty bad. When I was 14 or 15, I want to say. No, I think it was 14. So when I was around 14, my parents got me on birth control. And to my understanding, to what they told me it was for, I went on this birth control to help with the pain management of the endometriosis, which... I did not have a problem with. I didn't have any reason to need it otherwise. And I didn't really question it. I just thought, oh, wow, if this will help, then great. I didn't find out till years later, till I was married, that my parents had actually put me on the birth control because they thought my little 13, 14-year-old self was very active (laughs) it was a very sexually active young teenager which you were a baby I was so young and no I wasn't none of that none of those things took place I was of legal age before anything like that ever happened (laughs) I it just wasn't something I was doing or very interested in I wasn't a very affectionate I'm still really not a very physically affectionate person I would quote unquote date okay Uh, no 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 you are not physically affectionate with anybody but your husband because you need to backtrack that statement no you two in the best way possible are the only people i've seen be like lovingly adorable and let me let me finish my statement though i was the type of kid where if you tried to hold my hand i would probably break up with you because it was just too much It was, I was like, this is too fast. I can't do it. Love that. Like I had my first kiss when I was uh, 15, I think. And I broke up with the guy like three days later because I was like, this is just, this is way too much, way too much, way too fast. I can't handle it. (laughs) So for my parents to think. He kissed me. He kissed me. I was like, oh, nope, I can't, I can't do it. No, no, nope. And most of the time, if someone like confessed having feelings for me or told me that they liked me, anything along those lines, immediately it was like, oh, why'd you do that? Oh, no, no, no. Like that's, no, I wish you wouldn't have said anything. I was just not the kind of person that enjoyed those things or handled that stuff well. (laughs) I liked my friendships and that was where I wanted them to stay. And a lot of my friendships didn't like to stay that way. (laughs) So you were the queen of the friend zoning? I was. I didn't do well. I lo- I, I'm here for it. I had crushes and I was very happy with them remaining crushes. And the few crushes that didn't actually try to go further and make something out of like crush to relationship. I think those were my favorites because there was no pressure. There was nothing really amounting from that. It was just kind of like the cutesy right. little moments here and there. But then as soon as someone would be like, uh, yo, like, you want to be my girlfriend or let's date? It's just too much. Nope, I couldn't do it. You're like, I would rather not. I would rather you don't say anything ever again. Don't talk to me. Bye. Yeah. So for my parents to think that I needed birth control <laughs> because I was uh, I was getting it on. I was having the sex at that age. 
okay, no, but all right. I don't know where they got that idea or impression from, but <laughs> they had told me when I went on the birth control that it took six months for birth control to start working. And I was like, wow. Oh my God. And honestly, I didn't question it because I wasn't using it for that reason. Like I wasn't taking birth control to prevent the birth of anything. Nothing was happening. No, Nothing was going on down there. It really wasn't. Abby, <laughs> I'm sorry if this is TMI for our listeners. The first time I put a tampon in, I was like 17 and I about passed out because it was just too much. It was very shocking. It was traumatic. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? So I still don't get why they thought this was a thing. And my mom had to like talk me through how to insert a tampon. And she still thought I needed birth control. And I'm like, how... I'm asking you to teach me how to use a tampon. I physically almost passed out because it was so overwhelming. And you still think I'm like get, like going and like getting it on? Do you know my mom always thought I was going to be one the only kid that would have a teenage pregnancy? Joke's on her. I have PCOS and will have a really hard time getting pregnant. So You are the only one of your siblings that don't have kids yet either. And you're not even the youngest. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Correct. Well, so it wasn't until I was married, till I was married, that I found out birth control only takes about a week or two to kick in. Oh, God. And at that point, I was just irritated because it was like, why? Why did you think telling me it took six months? Like, it was just it none of it made sense. I guess they thought that if I was doing it, that I would I would just stop for six months. And You know, looking back, it makes sense. Like she would get, she and my dad, they would get so mad at me if I missed taking my pill or if I just forgot about it and like missed a week even. They'd be like, what are you doing? I'm like, I I mean, what does it matter? It's for pain. What else am I using it for? Like I never understood the level of anger. Right. But looking back, I get it now. They thought I was going to be getting pregnant. (laughs) And now I get why they were so stressed out all the time. Oh. But no, no, mom and dad, if you're listening, no, I was an adult. Legally, I was an adult. It was consensual. It was <laughs> not in between the five minute passing periods of classes because I don't know when else I would have made time for something like that. That was a lie I believed for way too long oh was how gosh. long it takes for birth control to be effective, which I get what they were hoping to do was to delay me from being sexually active they didn't need to worry about that right but I still think that there are better ways and that you should probably inform your children accurately on methods of birth control instead of lying to them because that's how pregnancies or sex education in general just sex education in general because that's how unwanted pregnancies do occur is by hiding and lying or just not talking to them in general (sighs) I wasn't, I guess, prudish, if that's the word you want to use, because I was shamed. I just truly was not interested in being touched and being affectionate with my peers or emotional connections after a certain point became too much. Even like friendships. If I spent the night at your house, like by the next morning, my parents needed to be there picking me up or I'd be really sick of you. Like I couldn't stand being around my friends for a certain amount of time. (laughs) I can relate to that. Yeah, I can relate to that. I didn't really like to go to sleepovers. I've always been kind of the person that has one close friend. Yeah, because that's all I can handle at one time. I need my space. (laughs) I want to be your best friend, but I don't want to be with you 24 seven. Right? Right. Right. I am an extroverted or no, I'm introverted extrovert. I see that. I still need my me time. So no, I completely understand. Just not 
not always wanting to be, and I don't, I also don't really do like, how have we hugged? I don't know if we have. Oh my gosh. Libby, I've known you for now 11 years. Yeah. I don't think we've ever, we are not physically affectionate people. We have a podcast and I talk to you more than most of my friends. I no, I think, no, I didn't even hug you when we left. Wow, no. I completely understand that. So that was my lie. What about, what about yours, Abby? Mine's um, way grosser, oh. way more gross. And I can remember it vividly. So as a kid, I liked to um, dig for gold, as they say, in <laughs> um, my nose. Okay. I liked to pick my nose when I was a kid. Don't know why, uh, but I did. So my mom told me one day when I was digging <laughs> that I needed to stop getting the brain juices from my nose. She said that all of the mucus was actually mucus from your brain that traveled down your nasal cavities. And then that's what boogers were. And Libby, I took that as law. I never once questioned that boogers were not brain goo because that's what my mom said. And I was like, I was four. I remember her doing this. How were you not traumatized that your brain would be gooping out, seeping out of your your head? She made it sound so normal. It's spring goo like, no, no big deal that would have sat with me for way too long Libby I thought that until at least I met my husband Abigail stop it so I was 25 years stop <laughs> at least 20 years of this knowledge Libby why would I question it nobody talks about boogers normally that's not a, a normal adult conversation unless you have kids Abby you're telling me when I met you you believed that your mucus was brain goo we sat in earth science together yes ma'am and at that current time during the cold mornings and you're wiping your nose with a tissue you're like nope there's more brain goo Oh, yes, ma'am. When I was in college. Grown adult. Oh, no. Yes, I did, in fact, think that uh, my boogers were brain goo. Only figured it out when my husband and I were talking, and he went to, I don't know, blow his nose or, or say something. And I said, honey, ew, I don't want your brain goo all over me. Because he had, like, sneezed or blowed his nose. And he goes, I'm sorry, what did you just say? And I said, your brain goo. I don't want your brain goo all over me because you just, that's your snot. And I told him the story and he looked at me and he goes, you are so interesting, but so wrong. Oh no. Tell me you called and confronted your mother. Tell me you addressed this. You know what? I don't know if I've ever talked to her. We should call her. <laughs> yes. You know what? I would like to interview your mom right Hold now. On. <laughs> yes. Hold on. <laughs> FaceTime mom. Please do it. Oh my gosh. I, I will keep this Starting in. Starting a FaceTime call to Elaine Spicer. We're keeping this in. Oh, do, do you hear it? I, yes, we're keeping this in. <laughs> yes, I still thought it was brain goo. Ooh. Hey, say hello to the podcast. You're on the podcast. Okay. She says, I don't remember things correctly. So she might not agree to this. Do you remember when I was little and I ate my boogers all the time? Oh my God, Abigail. <laughs> and yes. you told me that my boogers were actually brain goo. Do you know I believed that until I was 25? Yes, I do. <laughs> and do you think that's normal? Well, I got you to stop doing it. <laughs> I was telling Livy this and she goes, I don't, I cannot believe that your mom let you believe that until you oh, were 25. No. You know, James is the one that told oh. me it wasn't brain goo. I'll be honest. I had no idea that you actually continued to believe that up until this point in your life, but <laughs> it did work to get you to stop. But <laughs> I mean, you rooted, you dug up in there. I told, I said I was digging for gold. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, I said you found your brains. 
Set. Okay, Libby. Gross. All right. Thank you. Bye, Mom. Love thank you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> uh, See, I wasn't kidding. There you have it. Direct from the source. <sighs> I still think it's brain goo. <laughs> All right. Well, Libby, I think that's enough about... Brain goo and birth control. Is that the title of this episode? Yes, it should be. We have a, a fun new segment we're adding in, my friends, because I don't know how this has happened, but there's like over a thousand of you between all of our platforms. Huh. Not that I think that our bestie would ever come after us in any legal way, shape or form. Please don't. I think we should probably like add this fun disclaimer in at the start of our podcasts. Mm-hmm. So guys, this podcast and all of our episodes contain discussions and commentary on the series A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass, aka Bestie. We believe that our use of copyrighted material falls under the doctrine of fair use as we are providing transformative commentary, analysis, and discussion for educational and entertainment purposes. We respect the rights of the copyright owner and our use is in accordance with the principles of fair use under copyright law. Listeners are encouraged to obtain their own copy of A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Mass to fully enjoy and appreciate the work in its entirety and not just a court of thorns and roses but all works by sarah j moss please do obtain your own copy i mean specifically mist and fury because that's that's where we're at now abby i'm going to now reread my chapter three summary because as our listeners are unaware (laughs) we fully recorded this episode about two or three weeks ago oh yeah only to find our audio completely corrupted (laughs) and we lost all of it yeah that's the best way i can think of it just completely completely corrupted corrupted. i have no idea what happened somebody somewhere maybe the copyright gods out there got really angry at us and decided we needed to (laughs) learn our lesson so we are now having to (laughs) that's what happened re-record this episode so for the second time the first time for our listeners but for the second time i'm going to now read my chapter three summary Chapter 3. Tamlin must have felt guilty because Lucian was waiting the next morning for Feyre to join him and inspecting the progress on a nearby village. Feyre couldn't remember the last time she had even left the manor grounds. A few soldiers had attended their winter solstice celebrations, but Feyre struggled to do more than greet them due to the sheer size of the gathering. Feyre counted eight centuries from the house to the stables. Lucian started to mount his horse, but Feyre shoved his shoulder, demanding he answer for his tumble off the horse story he had provided the day before. Lucian staggered back at the shove and Feyre pressed further, wanting to know why why he had lied about the Naga. Lucian shook his red hair from his face and Feyre had to look away. It wasn't the same red as Amarantha's. Hers had been darker. Lucian's face was tanned and golden and Amarantha's had been pale. Feyre focused on the surrounding stables and appreciated the large openness that felt less like an encasement, unlike the kitchen where the walls were short and thick and windows couldn't be crawled through if needed, or the study where there was very little natural light and a lack of easy exits. Feyre knew which rooms of the manor she could and couldn't endure. Lucian defended that he didn't lie. He had technically fallen from his horse after Anaga had tackled him, Feyre thought how Fey, this line of thinking, of lying, was. Why? Feyre asked. Why? She asked again. Lucian turned to his horse and Feyre saw the pity in his eye. She changed the subject, asking instead if they could walk to the village. Lucian protested that it was three miles away. Feyre disputed that he could easily run that in a few minutes and she wanted to see if she could keep up. Never mind. Feyre conceded, knowing Lucian's response before he could even attempt to answer. As they rode to the village, Feyre broke the silence. She didn't want Lucian's pity. Lucian defended that it wasn't pity. 
Tamlin didn't think Favor needed to know. Favor cut him off to exclaim that she is not made of glass and she deserved to know if they were being attacked by Naga. Lucian simply stated that Tamlin is High Lord, so if he gives an order, Lucian must follow it. Favor was frustrated that Lucian didn't feel this way when he had directed her to find the Surreal, but Lucian explained that they had been desperate back then. Now they needed rules and ranks and order so they could rebuild. Tamlin was giving Favor as much free reign as he could right now. Favor forced her breath to steady before letting Lucian know that he sounded quite like Ianthe, despite not wanting to interact with her. Lucian hissed back that Feyre had no clue how hard it was for Tamlin to allow Feyre off the grounds, considering all the pressure he was currently under. Feyre didn't back down. She knew how much pressure Tamlin faced, but she hadn't agreed to become another prisoner. Lucian clenched his jaw at this, disagreeing that she was not a prisoner, and she knew that. Tamlin didn't care for Feyre back when she was human, and she could wander in more dangerous days. Not the way he does now. Tamlin was now terrified of seeing Feyre in enemy hands, and their enemies knew this. Feyre knew this, but she still didn't want a life of wearing pretty clothes and overseeing servants. Lucian watched the forest as he asked, Isn't that what all human women want? To have a handsome fae lord wed them and shower them with riches forever? Favor called Lucian a prick for this. He explained that Favor would be Tamlin's wife, and there were expectations and traditions she would need to uphold. The tithe would be happening soon, the first since the curse. Tamlin wanted to wait, but Ianthe felt the people were ready now. Favor didn't know what the tithe was. She asked him to tell her. Twice a year around summer and winter solstice, each spring court member must pay a tithe dependent on their income and status. It's how the estate continues to run. It's how they pay for servants, food, centuries, etc. In exchange, Tamlin rules and protects them. Give and take. As Tamlin's wife, Feyre is expected to sit with him to collect. And if the members cannot pay, she will be expected to sit there as Tamlin makes judgment. This can get messy. Lucian keeps track of who does and doesn't show up to pay. If the tithe is not paid within the three days grace that is customarily offered, then Tamlin is expected to hunt them down. Ianthe herself will grant him the sacred hunting rights for this. Feyre felt this was repulsive, but said nothing. Lucian continued, asking Feyre to give Tamlin time. Get through the wedding and then the tithe. Favor voiced that she was giving Tamlin time, but she couldn't be cooped up in the house forever. Lucian felt that Favor should forgive Tamlin since Tamlin's family had been slaughtered, so he wasn't willing to be liberal with her safety too. Favor was only angered more by this. She didn't want to marry a high lord, just Tamlin. But Lucian simply said that one does not exist without the other, then asked Feyre not to make him pick between Tamlin and her. Feyre fought back that Lucian was deliberately hiding things from her. Again, Lucian defended that he must obey Tamlin. Tamlin's word is his law. Lucian had been forced to watch his father butcher the female he had loved. Lucian's brothers had forced him to watch, and there was nothing to bring her back. Tamlin got what Lucian did not. He got Feyre back from death and would do everything in his power to protect her from that fate again, even if it means hiding things and keeping secrets. They reached the village and Feyre was pleasantly surprised to find pretty little buildings and livestock. The normalcy was almost shockingly similar to the human lands. As Lucian and Feyre rode into the chaos, everyone stopped to look at them. To look at Feyre. Feyre. Curse breaker, someone whispered. Lucian loudly offered their help, but a male replied that it was appreciated, yet their help was not needed. The debt is paid, he said. Lucian pleaded to provide some help, and the man only said again, the debt is paid. 
This occurred at every place Feyre and Lucian stopped in the village. After 20 minutes, Feyre and Lucian were returning back to the manor. Feyre asked Lucian if Tamlin had allowed her to go today so she would stop asking to help rebuild. Lucian told her no, but that's why he had decided to bring her. The Fae didn't want or need her help. She was a distraction, a reminder of what all they had gone through. Feyre didn't remember any of them from under the mountain, though. No, they had been in camps in a network of tunnels beneath the mountain, crammed into tunnels with no light and no air for 50 years. It was forbidden to speak of it. Some of the Fae had gone mad when Amarantha would forget to have her guards feed them. They would prey upon one another. Now they were trying to remember what it was like to live and be normal again. Feyre felt bile rising, but hoped that this wedding would be healing for them all. Lucian told Feyre he was sorry she couldn't help. Feyre could see the vastness of her unending existence laid out before her and allowed it to consume her entirely. Chapter 4. The days before the wedding ceremony were packed so full that Feyre, for once, was glad that she would never have to be the High Lady and never have the same level of responsibility and power as Tamlin. There were so many luncheons and dinners and picnics and hunts that Feyre was looking forward to the wedding just so all of this would be over. Her face had begun to ache from the forced smile she wore 24-7. Tamlin continued to remind her that these parties were a way to introduce Feyre to the people of his court and to give them something to celebrate. He said that he also hated the parties, that only Lucian really liked them, but she caught him grinning multiple times. He deserved to be happy, and so did the rest of the court after everything they had endured, so Feyre kept her mask on. Whenever she had to part from Tamlin, Feyre made sure Ianthi was at her side, considering all of Tamlin's friends, though they tried to converse with her, had run out of topics to discuss in minutes. It was awkward, and Feyre hated it all. Ianthi was there now, urging her to go to bed and asking if there was anything Feyre needed before the big day the following morning. Feyre said she was fine. Ianthi took notice of the two males that had been working up the courage to come over to talk to her. They flirted for a while before the men took notice of Feyre. Ianthi tried to introduce them, but they said they already knew her from under the mountain. One of them, Braun, congratulated her and said that this was a fitting end, eh? Feyre thought the only fitting end for her would have been a grave in hell. But thankfully, Ianthi cut in saying that the cauldron had blessed them all with such a union. Braun continued to Feyre and told her that the trial with the Midgard Worm, was one of the most brilliant things he'd ever seen. Narrowly avoiding a flashback, Feyre just replied with a short, thank you. Ianthi again stepped in and said her bravery was awe-inspiring. Feyre was so damn grateful for her presence, a calming hand keeping Feyre from reliving the pain-drenched trauma. Hart, the other man, told Feyre they had missed the hunt the other day, but it would be an honor to hunt with her if they were stationed close to them in the near future. Feyre didn't mention that the hunt had taken everything out of her and she hadn't pulled a single arrow that day. Instead, she said the honor would be hers. He then asked if she had heard from the High Lord as his eyes darted to her tattooed fingers. She said no, and he replied that he was probably running scared now that Tamlin had his full powers back. Feyre only said that the man must not have known Rhysand very well. Everyone kept quiet after that until Hart said, well, we'll take care of him if need be. Ianthi countered that the high priestesses were taking care of it, said that they wouldn't let their savior be treated so ill. Feyre bid her a farewell, saying she was going to tell Tamlin she'd see him tomorrow. They were being forced to sleep apart due to the long-held Fey tradition. Ianthi told Feyre to call if she needed anything, but Feyre knew she wouldn't. 
she nodded anyways. Feyre looked towards the front of the room before she slipped out. She saw Tamlin surrounded by a group of high fae, both male and female. She could tell the group were long friends, people who had fought at each other's side for decades. They were Tamlin's friends she'd been introduced to, but she didn't remember a single name. Tamlin's face was full of light as he roared with laughter, his friends joining around him. Feyre left before he could spot her. Once she was alone in her room, she realized she couldn't remember the last time she had truly laughed. Nightmares haunted her again that night. She was back in the room of hot spikes, about to die because she was illiterate and couldn't read the damn writing on the walls. She woke up in a cold sweat and forced herself to take in the room around her. This, here and now, was real. She wasn't under the mountain. She was home. And tomorrow, tomorrow would start the beginning of her new life. A life where she'd be married and have her happy ending. Her people, who deserved this more than anything, would have their happy ending too. They would be okay, and so would she. Feyre really, truly hated her wedding gown. It was ridiculous and no wonder it made Tamlin laugh. She gathered the huge skirts in her hands as she made her way down the stairs to the main hall and then to the patio door where she paused. She knew behind those doors sat 300 of Tamlin's court and her high lord waiting for her. Ianthe would be the one officiating the ceremony as representation of the 12 high priestesses. She'd managed to keep them all from coming think the cauldron. Alice told Feyre not to be nervous, but when Feyre denied she was, Alice said she was fidgeting as much as her nephew getting a haircut. To ease her nerves, Alice told Feyre that she was beautiful. Feyre gave her a thanks, and Alice replied that Feyre sounded like she was going to her funeral, not her wedding. Feyre donned her mask of a fake smile, and Alice only said it'll be over faster than she could blink. The doors opened, and 300 Fae stared at her, and Tamlin Oh, gods. He had eased his glamour and let his true fey beauty shine through. Farah started to make her way down the aisle to him when she saw the white rose petals and the red ones. Red. Blood red. She found Tamlin's gaze and couldn't believe he was so unaware of how broken and dark she was. How she shouldn't have been wearing white with so much blood on her dirty hands. She thought everyone must be thinking it. She was both a murderer and a liar and everything was going way too fast. The world began to move in slow motion. Tamlin's hand reached out to hers, his eyebrows arching in confusion. Feyre was going to throw up. She could feel all 300 sets of eyes on her. It, it was too much. The gloves on her hands, gifted by Ianthe, made her feel embarrassed, and she didn't know why she'd even let Ianthe convince her to wear them. It was hot, too hot, too much. Everything was too much. Feyre was convinced that she would be stuck like this forever, unable to get better, unable to free herself from the dungeon where she had sat rotting for three months. Tamlin called her name, but Feyre couldn't answer. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't move. She was going to fall apart. Everyone would see just how broken she truly was. Feyre begged internally for someone, anyone to help. Help me. Help me. She looked at Lucian and Ianthe and pleaded, save me. Save me. Get me out. End this. But Tamlin stepped closer to her and Feyre took a step back. Ianthe said, come bride and be joined with your true love. Come bride and let good triumph at last. But Feyre, Feyre was not good. She was nothing but damned to hell. She tried to form the word no, but her lungs wouldn't fill with air. Thunder boomed from behind her, and she heard the guests scream. Feyre whipped around to see him straightening the lapels of his jacket. Hello, Feyre darling, Rhysand said. So a lot to unpack here. Another cliffhanger. Side note. <laughs> There's that. Of course. I'm going to backtrack a little bit to chapter three. Mm -hmm. I am so frustrated with how hard Lucian is defending Tamlin. I understand that Tamlin is his high lord. And I understand some of the points that Lucian's trying to make. But Feyre could just be venting to him. 
And he could simply just hear her out and be that support, that ear, that shoulder to cry on, let her vent and get it all out. Instead, he's got to fight against her and shut her up on all of it. Tell her how she's wrong, how her feelings aren't valid or good enough or justified enough. And it's just irritating. She ripped herself apart. She allowed herself to be killed, allowed herself to be torn apart. And you can't even let her open up to you and get some of these feelings out there. You have to shut her down and tell her she needs to be more understanding and patient of the man who was not physically tormented and mindfuck. He was made to stand by the throne and watch other people get absolutely abused and tormented. But let's give him the understanding and patience he needs to get through this. I love how he even says like, you have no idea how hard (laughs) it is for him to let you go. Poor Tamlin. Oh, is Tamlin the one that, you know, had to go through the trials under the mountain and also is dealing with PTSD? No? Huh. At one point, he uses the fact that, well, Tamlin didn't care back then, so it was okay if you died back then. I'm sorry. What an ass. (laughs) But he likes you now. Now he likes you, he'll keep you safe. Fuck you, guy. That you care that little about life in general that you have to have some sort of significance, some sort of attachment to keep them alive. It's such a bullshit response. I hate how he says, like when Fader is like, you haven't told me shit. (laughs) Like, literally, I'm in the dark here. And Lucian's response, which is the most bitch boy response I've ever heard. Page 29. He is my high lord. His word is law. I'm fucking... um, Excuse me, right? I'm sorry. It's not. He's like, we're doing it to keep you safe. We're lying and hiding things because we know more. Shut up. Shut up. Because we're the men and and men are supposed to take care of stuff and you're just supposed to stay in the house and plan your wedding and be happy and paint. You should feel flattered that you matter now. You should feel good that you matter enough to be alive. You're welcome. And then he throws in the guilt trip about his, was it his mate? Was it his lover? It was just his lover. They weren't mates. And he's like, there was no magical spell to bring her back, right? I'll never forget when I heard her neck snap. And he's like, Tamlin got what I didn't. I am so sorry that that happened to you, my guy. But um, this has nothing to do with the current conversation. So you can put that little guilt trip back in your pocket. I'm so sorry you went through that. But Feyre doesn't owe you anything because you went through that. That has got nothing to do with her. No. That is your separate trauma that you need to process. She doesn't have to make amends and pay for the fact that you went through a shitty experience. She doesn't owe you anything from that. You need to deal with that yourself. It's not on her. I lost a little respect for Lucian in this chapter. So far in this book, Lucian to me is just like, here's why I can't help you. Oh no, I'm so sorry. Here's my list of excuses for why I can't be a good friend to you right now. And I hope that that doesn't continue on. He wasn't reliable in the beginning of Akatar, but that was because he really didn't give a shit if she was alive or not. And then when he did start to care about her survival, he still wasn't reliable. He still didn't go above and beyond to keep her safe. And now he He's just giving her excuse after excuse as to why he isn't reliable even still. And it's frustrating to me because he, as a character, is someone that I've admired and and I have seen so much potential for. And yet now he is just significantly letting us all down as that supporting character to Feyre. He's over here siding and protecting Tamlin, who does not need it, who refuses to be protected by anyone. It's just bullcrap. Do you know the trope of the gay best friend? Okay. 
Yeah. Always there, side character, there to like lift you up, back you up. Not that I'm at all insinuating Lucian's sexuality, but I kind of get that same vibe. That's what I've been feeling. Like he is there as a side support character for Feyre. Honestly, he's Tamlin's support character, but that friendship bonds, right? Right. It pissed me off for him to have plotted to take her to the, the villages to show her that nobody needs her. To teach her a lesson. I don't know if it was necessarily like to teach her a lesson. I mean, how was it not though? Because he said, I brought you here so that you would learn. You would see that they don't want you, that you're a distraction. It says, I decided to take you myself for that exact reason. They don't want or need your help. Your presence is a distraction, a reminder of what they went through. To teach her a lesson, to show her they don't want you here. Stop asking. I think it was just so unnecessarily mean. I agree. I think it was incredibly mean. I've never seen him be ruthlessly mean. Have we? I don't think towards Fair. I think that was very cold. I think that he has the potential to be, but we haven't seen him actually pull this crap. And we kind of expected it when he set her up with the Surreal and the Naga and in the earlier days of Akatar. I thought that was funny. I know I shouldn't, but I, I very much did find that to be funny. It felt like it was fitting for his character back then and for someone who didn't like Feyre whatsoever. But now, I guess... I'm hopeful and I'm expecting him to be a better friend to her. And I realistically shouldn't. I have no reason to believe he would choose Feyre over Tamlin. I mean, he even says, don't ask me to choose between you and Tamlin. And I guess as the reader, I keep hoping that he'll show me he will do the right thing and be there for Feyre. But why? What What do I have to go off of to tell me that he would actually choose Feyre over Tamlin? It's really annoying that he said, I'm sorry to her. I mean, honestly, Feyre is not a great place at this point. Right. Stressed out about the wedding we see in chapter four that things really don't go as to planned but you know she's not in a great spot right and instead of explaining the situation to her and just talking to her like a person instead of having a frank conversation with her he takes her out of the house lures her <laughs> basically and takes her to this village where he makes a man say we don't need you like, thank you. We are very thankful for what you did. We don't need you. And instead of him going, I know you wanted to help. That's okay. They're good. Don't worry about it. Instead, he's so mean. Your presence is a distraction and a reminder of what they went through. They did horrible things. Right now, they're trying to remember what it is to be normal and how to live. Do you think had he just simply sat her down and told her this face to face instead of dragging her out there, he would have been open to receiving it? Because I do. Yeah. I think had he sat course. her down and told her, look, I get that you want to help. I understand. I want to help too. But here's why you going isn't helpful. Here's what it does to them. I think she would have easily been receptive to that. But he didn't do that. He went about this colder, more cruel way of throwing it in her face. A way I think Tamlin would have gone. I know that he said that Tamlin, it wasn't his idea. But do you think that Tamlin was at least aware and supportive of this happening? Do you think that Lucian's going to take Feyre out of the <laughs> manor, manor without Tamlin's knowing or approval? Of course he did. And I'm sure Tamlin said, make sure the point gets across that they don't want her. Oh, I bet. And then at the very end, Feyre's like... The vastness of my now unending existence yawned open before me. I let it swallow me whole. Feyre has been needed her whole life. Yeah. She was the glue keeping her family together. She's the one that saved Perenthian. She is used to running on adrenaline and the need of fixing and helping other people. Now suddenly she has an infinite amount of time to do what? Nothing. Sit in a house. It appears like every chapter so far 
in the beginning of this book we're finding is just one more nail to close the coffin <laughs> like we are just watching her get broken more and more with each chapter I think it's interesting how in Akatar she describes the Spring Court manor as that a manor a mansion and a vast huge property gardens and huge lands and now as she's feeling more and more locked in more and more confined to being watched over patrolled I guess she describes it as a house she can't be locked into the house it's becoming smaller her descriptions of the places that she's being confined to are becoming claustrophobic I guess that's the best way to describe that they're just becoming more restricting tinier I mean because it is she is in her painting room, the main hallways. She's in the throne room. I mean, she's just in these very specific places. She's not even in certain rooms. She doesn't want to paint, yeah. Even if she went into every single room, it's going to feel confining enough as it is. She's saying... I won't go in the kitchen. I won't go in the study. There are places that she is refusing to enter. So her already small world is just closing in more and more on her. Do you remember when we started this podcast and we said that um, people need therapy? Yeah. <laughs> Thera, my friend, this is textbook PTSD. 2AT, my friend, I just need you to sit down with some fae psychiatrist and um, psychologists in like figure it out. You obviously went through a lot of trauma. Not to spoil the future, she's gonna go through some more. But I feel like even if she talked to somebody about it, cause she keeps saying, I'm broken, I am dark, I am dirty, I am all that's wrong with the world, I'm evil, I don't deserve shit, right? That's how she's thinking of herself. The world around her is so small because she doesn't wanna go here because it reminds her of X, Y, Z. She doesn't wanna look at certain people because they remind her of the past. Like, imagine if she just talked to one person like even Alice is that not what she's trying to do with Lucian and he is shutting her down and telling her how wrong she is Lucian's the wrong person if you are dealing with this level of PTSD you finally open up to literally anybody and their response to you is you need to be more understanding you are being ridiculous is that gonna make you think let me go find someone else that's gonna make you feel like you need to shut down even more no but now i also want to defend lucian in the grand scheme of things that is his high lord it is and he's not a therapist so i i'm not saying that it is his responsibility to know how to handle it how long has he had to listen to tamlin and we know tamlin has a temper i kind of feel like tamlin's kind of juggling between the lesser of two evils like at this point who's going to be more explosive when they combust when they get really angry at this point Tamlin. I'm not trying to lay it on thick and say Lucian's awful. Look how horrible he is. My point is... He's being a turd. Oh yeah. I'm not absolutely thrilled with his choices, his actions right now, or his dialogue, but... I can see why Feyre is closing in more and more on herself. Why she's losing herself more and more than she already has. With all the components, all of the elements that are being thrown into this, it doesn't surprise me that she's feeling as what sounds like depressed as she is. Moving on to chapter four at that point. You know, the best way to handle trauma is... Run away. The wedding. That, how that too, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was going <laughs> to say run away. <laughs> She, she doesn't want to do it. She's getting real nervous. She knows all this is going to happen. For Tamlin to go on and on about how he feels the same way about get-togethers, and then you see him literally in his element. He is thriving. He is just happy as can be. You don't fake that. That's crap. Tamlin is not a good actor. 
Let's be real. There's people who really, truly enjoy that environment. That's totally fine. Totally fine if you do. In my family, I'm thinking about my dad, right? He's the mayor of the town I live in. He is very much an extrovert when he's around people. When Feyre said I looked over and saw these people who have been together for decades, who have fought through war together, and I saw them have that camaraderie, I really did think of my dad and his friends, right? Okay. I can see my dad in a restaurant laughing with his friends. That's the same kind of vibe I got. Again, you can't fake that. Right. He is truly happy. Those are his people. This is his area, his court. He's surrounded celebrating this wedding and is surrounded by his people. But at the same point, this is all for the wedding, right? Right. Why isn't he giving a singular fuck about Feyre? Hmm. He doesn't even seem to notice that she's gone up and off to bed. Nope. He's probably not even looking for her. I don't ever have any indication that he's like, oh, where's my bride to be in this situation? No, because Ianthe comes up to her when Feyre's by herself and is like, hey, you should probably go to bed and like first off part of me is like don't tell me what to do that was really weird and even Feyre said that she's like I have an hour until I have to go to bed like what do you go away what the fuck I have an hour before I'm sorry she's an adult fuck off I'm like girl it's night before your wedding I personally slept very well but like I know a lot of people are not gonna sleep the night before their wedding in this whole time Feyre is now with Ianthe talking to two males and Tamlin's not even like hey nothing not concerned like you don't look like you're doing great because Feyre is giving really short responses and like they're kind of trying to fawn all over her and saying how they can't wait to hunt with her and Feyre's thinking I hated that hunt I didn't even put my bow up once she's obviously uncomfortable Ianthe can tell she's uncomfortable where's Tamlin shooting the shit with his friends if that's the kind of stuff you like doing that's fine you are more than welcome to be an extroverted party person there's nothing wrong with enjoying being around other people I don't appreciate that you led Feyre to believe that you guys were so similar in the fact that you don't. That you used it as a bonding method and you were full of shit the whole time. That's manipulative. Very. That is manipulative. Totally such a lie on his character right there. I mean, he's so full of it. He clearly isn't the person he's made himself out to be to her and he doesn't even, it's just, why? Don't lie. If you like what you like and be honest about it. Can I complain about Ianthe? Yes. Do you know sleazy car salesmen? (laughs) Okay. Okay. So say like you're wanting to get this car and obviously there's a huge stain in the seat. Okay. The car salesman will go like, ah, nobody will even notice that. Like that, that small little stain, right? I feel like they just try to like make sure everything looks good. Sugarcoat it all. Ianthe is like doing that in this conversation with the two men. The guy was like, isn't this a cool ending, eh? Like everything that happened. I think the mating of the two is blessed by the cauldron. Or anytime that the guy was like, hey, you talk to High Lord of the Night Court? Like, mm-hmm anything going on there? Ianthe's like, we've got it covered. Like the high priestesses are dealing with it all. I don't know. I got that kind of like sleazy vibe. Like she's never going to let Feyre talk for herself and she's going to make everything sugar-coated. It's all good. It's all fine. Everything's good. It's a fake smile at all times and we are good to go. So that pisses me off because you're allowed to have emotions and you're allowed to be upset and you're allowed to feel your feelings. And Ianthe does the opposite of that. You've just got to sugarcoat literally everything for the public. And that makes me angry. But on to the big event. Well, I was going to say the elephant in the room, but I guess I should say the bat in the room. (laughs) Feyre doesn't want to get married. This made me so sad. Oh, I'm laughing because I thought it was funny. I will say, I think I know what you're referencing. That part I loved and was like squealing and like, yes, I thought it was great. But the part where Feyre is walking down the aisle and she sees the red and it's just heartbreaking to see the red rose puddles. As she had told Ianthe, just no red, just no red. You can literally do any color in the world. I don't care what you do. You have full free creative freedom. Do whatever you want to do. No red. And what does she put out there? Red rose petals. 
bottles. Feyre goes into a full anxiety attack and sprinkles it into the white. That is a conscious effort. Ugh. Absolutely devastating. You can see Farrah's having a panic attack. And then for her to be looking around, you're telling me she wasn't clear all over her face that she is terrified right now and needs help. And everyone's just looking at her. Lucian's just looking at her. Tamlin's just like, yo, let's go. Let's get out on the aisle. Like worried about themselves, about getting the wedding over with. Instead of, oh crap, she needs help right now. She's not okay. It's, nope, let's hurry up. Come on. Let's get married, get moving, get stepping, let's go. Nobody gives a shit. And he reaches his hand out like wanting to pull her. That's exactly what I got. Not let me take your hand like here, grab her and get her down the aisle. That's the vibe I got. There's a quote here. And Ianthe does the same shit. Can I preface with why I think it was funny before I continue on this? Yes. Because I'm not saying that her pleading for help was funny. No, no, no. In a dark, screwed up way. She's known this for a long time. And I just think it's funny that like it happened. Yeah. There's dark humor in it. There is some dark humor in it. I get it. She did know this This was going to happen. She knew she didn't want to get married. A funny, not funny. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, great. <laughs> it's like when bad shit happens in your life and you're just like, oh, <laughs> but you're not really like amused. Like you're like, oh, that's fucking wonderful. Like, but it's obviously not. Humor is my coping mechanism, I guess. And so that's where it's happening. Like I laugh at funerals because I can't not. It's just a coping mechanism. So I will say it is very sad. And when she's like pleading the whole help me, help me, help me. And she's looking at Ianthe and she's looking at Lucian like, help. And I feel like if it was you and if I looked at you like, help, you would go, you would immediately be like, done. You would grab my hand. We'd be, we'd be out of there. Oh, absolutely. You know what that reminds me of though? Was in your wedding, when you had people disrespecting the request for no photos and videos, Lindsay, <laughs> bestie Lindsay, literally got up in there and was like, put the phone away. You know, from that moment alone, you have people, you have people that will stand up and get you out of a situation even if it's against my own mother-in-law i wasn't gonna put her on blast but yes <laughs> that's who it was she can go on blast <laughs> she can go on blast anyway i asked that nobody have video or photo at my wedding because i had a photographer and that's the reason for them i had been a wedding photographer in the past and that is really annoying so i purposely had my brother who is the officiant announce no phones or video allowed at all everybody put your cell phones away turn them off what does my mother-in-law do after i had already told her stepmother-in-law let me clarify after I already told her the night before I would not be allowing any phones or video at my wedding pulls out her phone and without me having to say anything I glanced one look at Lindsay it would have been Libby she was in Disneyland we're forgiving her <laughs> I one glance at Lindsay and Lindsay looked back at me and as close friends you should be able to basically read their mind not gonna lie oh yeah and I just looked at Lindsay and Lindsay went oh hell no <laughs> and as she walked down the aisle like literally grabbed my mother-in-law's phone and put it down I have a photo of her pointing at it and it's the best picture I've ever had and in that same vibe if I was walking down the aisle and I was at all panicked at all upset if I even looked an ounce upset I would have had about 10 people come after me and let me turn around and go back to the house or whatever I needed I know if that if you gave that look not once would James be like hurry up and get down there he'd be walking to you being like let's go let's get out of here oh he would look at me and go what's wrong like how can I help? What did I do wrong? Instead of, this is what Ianthe said, because <laughs> you had mentioned it earlier. Come bride and be joined with your true love. Come bride and let good triumph at last. Not, 
Hey girl, you look like you're about to throw up. You okay? No, come here now. She's also reduced her from being a person, from being Feyre to come bride. That is who you are. You are bride. You are not Feyre. You are not anyone else. You are not even Cursebreaker. Come bride. I like how she's like, she said help me at first, but then Feyre says save me. Mm. That's very different than help me. That is two different statements. She's lost control and power to even be helped. She. It's not that she needs assistance. It's that she has nothing. She has no power here. Mm. She needs someone to step in. Lippy. Tamlin took a step towards me, concern shading his eyes. I retreated a step and thought no. Tamlin's mouth tightened. <laughs> Not Tamlin came forward and asked me if I was okay. Not Tamlin grabbed my hand. You know what the look on my face would have been if my husband started to panic? I would have been concerned. I would have been like brows gone up. Like are you, what is going on? Not furrowed and jaw clenching. Not like irritation. I would have been worried. Not frustrated and it just pisses me off that he's just like get your get down here my friend do you know who did show up for pharaoh Aldrin bless she asked for help and who showed up magnificent resan shadow daddy resan i'm personally going to hold my thoughts and feelings on that until the next chapter and the next episode my friends because i for once get to leave you on a cliffhanger see i won't do that right now i'm gonna say because when i read that i didn't even have to go on to the next chapter i breathed a sigh of relief i was incredibly oh like thank goodness Goodness, she is not having to go through with this. This felt rushed. You did, but did Feyre? Look, we will get to that next episode. Do you have a favorite quote? It's page 37 of the physical book. And it says, alone in my bedroom, I realized I couldn't remember the last time I truly laughed. And the reason I love that so much is because I had that point. I know what that feeling is like to realize. I know it on the happier side. Like when I laughed again, I was like, oh, I hadn't felt that in so long. I feel like that is one of the lowest places you can be. You can't remember the last time you laughed. Rock bottom. What about you? You got a happier one maybe? No, not happier. Not okay. <laughs> Great. I was like, maybe Libby can make this less sad. Okay, but look, not a lot of happy has been happening right now, okay? It's not a lot of happy to choose from. No, there isn't. I have two. My first one was as she's going down the aisle and she does freeze and she says, help me, help me, help me. I begged someone, anyone, begged Lucian standing in the front row, his metal eye fixed on me, begged Ianthe, face serene and patient and lovely within that hood. Save me, please save me. Get me out in this. Just like the end of this. The 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 gutted oh like just I want it done. The desperation that oh it was a gut punch. And then the one I think the only happy thing I could find was the very last of your chapter. Hello, Farah darling, he purred. <laughs> that was the only positive that I could truly find in these chapters. So those were my favorites. I was personally very excited to see him. Is Feyre excited? Who knows? Libby, do you know what I'm excited for? What are you excited for? Our star of the week, like I am every week. Ooh. I say it every week, guys, but I seriously do mean it. I'm really excited about this one because I found them and I love them. They're called Seasonal Vibe and I found them on Etsy. Libby, you also found them on Etsy a long time ago. Ooh. These are the people that make the really cool signs the different like directional signs. There's one that says to the House of Wind and to the New York Institute, which is from the Mortal Instruments series. My friends, please also read that. It is fantastic. Anyway, there are two lovely human beings and they have given us their about me. So I'm going to read it out for you. They are Seasonal Vibe. And they said, we are Chris and Laura, two sisters from Spain who founded Seasonal Vibe back in 2017. They're from Spain. I could go visit Libby. 
We should do that. We first joined Bookstagram, and a few months later, we decided to combine our love for literature and creativity and opened up our own merch shop inspired by our favorite stories, characters, and places. We take a lot of inspo from Akamath. <laughs> well convenient. And we have been creating designs based on these series since we began with Seasonal Vibe. And that is why being featured on this post podcast is even more special. In these six years, we feel fortunate to have founded and honed an online community that has given us space to create freely and a home for our ideas, creativity, and our brand. Over the years, we have been slowly creating what we like to think are distinguished handcrafted items among the Bookstagram community. Some of our favorite items, the ones we are the most proud of, are our wood signposts inspired by all the magical places readers would like to visit when reading. It also has been a joy to have worked alongside authors to make their worlds come alive with our designs and participating in national and international book boxes. Additionally, we love focusing on our boldest projects like our Harry Potter school year boxes or our library advent calendars, which are always challenging, but also very gratifying. We have loved the journey that has brought us to this day with seasonal vibe, and we can't wait to see where our roads lead us, hopefully on the way to more magical places inspired by books. Okay, I'm not kidding. Their wooden signs are everything. I must get the one that says House of Wind, City Bones. Uh, Libby, there's a Valaris one. Yes. And they make beautiful wooden bookmarks, and it says, I claim you to whatever end. They're beautiful. And I love that it's just not SJM. I love that it's not just bestie stuff because I obviously love bestie, but I don't know to see mortal instruments on there was just really cool because that's a series I read back in high school. So to know that like something that I hold really dear to my heart is still something that's being shown. They even have like runes from mortal instruments, which is just fantastic. It looks like they've even made, they made a sword Libby, their own dagger. How do you make daggers? <laughs> skills. I don't, these people are magical. They are on both Etsy and on Instagram at seasonal vibe, all one word. Please go check them out. I am beyond obsessed with their stuff. Calling all dreamers. We want to hear from you. Send an email to a court of thorns and podcasts at gmail.com. Tell us everything. How you found the series, what was your favorite or most disliked moments, your favorite and most hated characters, or any questions you have for us. If you have a question of the week that you would like us to do in our opening segment of the podcast, please send it to us. We are always open to any input from our darling listeners. Send us your drama. We'll send you our opinions. No promises they'll be any good, but we'll try. <laughs> if you like us at all, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify to help us find more of our bookish friends. To the people who listen and the dreams that are answered. We'll see you next week. And remember, don't let the hard days win. Thank you for hearing me from the dark. Listening from the fight. Makes me taking all my feelings. You in my head. You in my heart. I'm never in the dark. Hers had been darker. Huh. I like shut hers had been darker. A bit darker.